Church Podcast. This is part 15 of our series, Take It Back, with a message entitled, Take Back the Wreckage of Your Life, with Pastor Nelson Jones. Wreckage, not a nice word, but there's a lot of it in life. We want to talk about, on Palm Sunday, taking back the wreckage of our life. There's one thing I guarantee you in this life, and that is wreckage. I guarantee you there's going to be wreckage within your family. There's going to be wreckage within your economics. There's going to be wreckage within your health. There's going to be major times of wreckage. And then there's just the little things that come along. Wreckage. How do you take it back? How do you take wreckage and make it something good? Here's a great scripture we're starting with on Palm Sunday. We're going to get to Palm Sunday, read it, and take a look at it. But I want to frame this first. In Joel 2.25, it says something really quite incredible. It says this, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. It's an interesting scripture. It's well known in Christendom. It's often quoted in settings where there has been such wreckage that it just seems impossible that there would ever be a comeback that it seems impossible that you'd ever come back from this particular setback. And yet this is what his promise is. He's saying to the nation of Israel, which, by the way, had been up and down in their idolatry and uh, worship of God back and forth, all kinds of issues over long, um, can we say, hundreds and even millennia. And he's talking to them and he's saying, I want you to know, I never want you to forget this. I'm going to restore. I will restore to you the years. Now, does that mean he's just going to give them back all of those years and they get to do a bunch of redos? It's actually not what it's focused on. The key thing to understand about what kind of wreckage is taken back is to understand what took it. What was the tool? The tool was the locust. What do they eat? They eat the fruit. They eat the grain. They take the fruitfulness from the year. How many unfruitful years has a relationship gone through because the locusts burn through and eat all the fruit and there's no fruit? Fruitlessness. This happens in our life in many different ways. And so he's really saying, I'm not going to give you back all of these years that you get to relive them. It's not about you going back and undoing all the regrets you may have today. It's the idea that's rooted that I have the capability, if you make the turn, that I can restore to you the fruit from those years that you lost. Not through the natural, just processes of land, because this whole promise starts with the divinity. It's starting with God himself. He says, I will restore to you. He didn't say, I'm going to give you the power, you go restore. You can't restore the fruitless years. You can't restore the bad decisions and the fruitless things that have taken place in your life. You can't destroy backsliddenness for years as a Christian. You can't restore that. You cannot restore all of that on your own. He's saying, I will restore to you this fruit. It's him that can take all of the fruitlessness that can make us feel so hopeless in the middle of our long journeys in life. And we look at it and say, how can this ever, ever be good? 
He's saying, I can restore this fruit. To such an extent, he says it this way, that no matter which invading army, the locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar, or the palmer worm, and each of them destroy differently, he's saying, I can restore from the wall. We tend to categorize with God and we limit God so often in what he can do in our life. God can restore fruitfulness. Job, you know his story. Job goes through this incredible test that God allows, in fact, is, almost, is really set up by God. And because he entreats or he talks to Satan when he visits a God and he says to him, have you considered my servant Job? Well, that was just an invitation to the conversation. And Job now is going to go through a test where God allows Satan to test him with the limitations at each phase of testing. He goes through incredible loss. Fruit in his life is destroyed. His economics are destroyed. His family is destroyed. The only thing not destroyed is his faith. It's still there. He doesn't understand it. He's in a confused state. He's in a state of, wow, what now? What worse could happen? He's questioning God. I don't get it. But at the end of his journey, because of his faithfulness to God, that he did not deny God and walk away, God restores to him twice what he had before. What did he do? He restored the years the canker worm had eaten. He does this in lives all through the scripture. He's done it in many of your lives. God taking back the wreckage of your life. You actually can't do it. It must be a divinity, a divine beginning, a divine, a divine purpose in God to do this. And you position yourself so that it can happen in your life. Now, let's step into the Palm Sunday story and read a little bit of that particular story. You know that this is just the week before Jesus is going to be resurrected. In this entire week, he's going to be received as a king uh, by some. He is going to be put on a cross a few days later. He is going to be placed in a tomb. He is going to rise again. And all within this week is this incredible, beautiful thing that he does for you and I individually to set up restoration in our life because our life that is left unattended by the divinity of God is a life that will be eaten, the fruitlessness of it. What good is it if a man gains gains the whole world but loses his own soul? You can make a lot of things in life successful and have no fruit that matters. He says, I will restore the fruitfulness. We go through things. We go through loss. Jesus Christ is the beginning of that recovery. We mourn, we grieve. You heard some of God's story in people's lives on that video. It's always got this component 
where there is this heavy water, hard times, for whatever reason, choices, non-choices, things that just come. But the response is always the same. As we are surrendered to God, God is able to do remarkable things in our life. Let's read this particular day's story. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That was hundreds of years before this event ever happened. His disciples didn't remember or understand these things at first. After he was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were testifying about him. Let me just reflect that story. That happened within just days of this particular event. It was a remarkable miracle. It took place only a few miles away from Jerusalem where Jesus called his friend Lazarus out from the grave. He had been dead for days already. And Jesus just called him out. And this thing lit up just before the Passover, all of the masses that were gathering for the Passover, coming from all over the world for Passover. In fact, it says in the next verse, that's why the crowd came to meet him. Because they had heard about this miraculous sign that he had done. So we find the crowd's motivation. The crowd's motivation that day as Jesus came in riding on, the, on a colt of a donkey is that they heard about this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave after days. The power. Here they are. They want to come. They want to see this guy. Verse 19, therefore the Pharisees said to each other, see, You've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world is following after him. This is an interesting thing. So the crowd gathers, not just because Jesus is coming, they're gathering because this amazing miracle that happened just before this. And it was a miracle of resurrection. Well, in one week's time from this point on, he himself is going to be resurrected from the grave. But in doing this, the crowd was set up. And they are now acknowledging, we are here to acknowledge you're the king of Israel. You're the Messiah. We recognize you as the king of Israel. What brought them there? The demonstration of power. Power. Now, power is a good thing. But it wasn't going to even last the week as a motivation. Because within days... Many that were on the roadside that day putting down palm branches would be saying, crucify him. What were they missing? What were they missing this day as he came in? They were saying the right words. They were even taking the right actions. 
But we were missing a big component here. We find that component in the next story I want to go to, which happened again within this time frame. It goes and it says this. He told this next story to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a taxman. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, crooks, adulterers. I am not like these people. I'm not robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid like this tax man. I fast twice a week and tithe all of my income. We find that out of these two men, the first guy up to bat in the story is a guy that's standing in a confidence of his own kind of righteousness and godliness and his that somehow he is on a higher echelon and higher plane than all of everybody else around him. Well, he was a Pharisee. He was somebody who was religiously trained. He had this elite status in the culture and he was sort of the one that was in touch with, you know, this God. He was between everybody else and God, rising higher on the ladder. Yet in this story, he stands in arrogance within the temple itself and compares himself to everybody else and one man right next to him. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up. He said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. They may have been on that day, that Palm Sunday, doing the right thing and putting palm branches in front of the oncoming Messiah and acknowledging his kingship because of the power gifts that have been so demonstrated over the things that they had no power of. They themselves were in a bondage, just like death is the ultimate bondage. They were in bondage to the Romans. They were in bondage to, in, in, in that they didn't have the freedom that they wanted. They wanted their nationalism restored. They wanted as the nation to return to greatness. They had all of these drives going on inside them and, and here is the power to get it done. Finally, the power is here to take the Romans on. Finally, the power is here to break the bondage of that which holds us. It's true. But they were missing out on something very, very large. This Pharisee would be much like the person that looked at God as power, that would empower him, that he could, with power, look abroad and, around, and amongst other men around him and lift himself up above the masses to uh, put himself into a different position with God, that he had, a, he had the greater power. 
And yet it's at the end of this story, Jesus says, do you get this? His prayer isn't answered. What was his prayer? What was he actually asking for? What was he actually declaring? It was just, it was a self-declaration. This next man, he just simply humbles himself. You can lay palm branches and say all the right things before the Lord, but I'll tell you when you're really welcoming the Messiah is when there is a humility and a humbleness in your life that has caused you not to be laying just palm branches. Those only represent your whole life, your heart, your response to who he is. You're in touch with who he is. You are in relationship with the truth about him and the truth about you. See, there are some truths that you need to be in relationship to in a healthy way. That last verse in the story, it says, how do you be, is is simply that, you know, until you're simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. If you're going to be content to be simply yourself, then you can become more than yourself. That's what that guy was missing. But this is what the tax man got. He was just being simply honest about his own content. You're just saying this is who I am. And he just beat his breast and said, I need mercy. Simpleness of truth. Then he becomes more than himself. We need to embrace truths. And there's a couple truths that they were not embracing on that day and and the Palm Sunday. We need to embrace first the truth about yourself. All those people along that path as Jesus entered toward the eastern gate and they were laying down these palm branches and calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. Was a statement, wasn't even a request, it's a statement of finally I get what I want. What they needed was mercy. Mercy. What they wanted was liberation from the Romans. Restoration, nationalism. They had politicized, they had made it a religious thing rather than a heart thing. We need to embrace the truth about ourselves. Many in those crowd would have the wreckage in their life. And they would take all of that wreckage and all the blame would go on the condition. Ah, you know, if we weren't under Romans, my life, I wouldn't have all this wreckage. If this hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened, then I wouldn't have all this wreckage. We get wreckage. Wreckage is a part of breathing. Wreckage is a part of a flawed, uh, can we say, use of our wills and responses in life. Wreckage is a part of what we do in life. We must embrace the truth about ourselves. Not only is wreckage wreaked upon us, but we wreak wreckage upon others. That's a hard truth. But yet, that's what that man praying was saying. He wasn't just saying, I'm, I, I need mercy because of, of, of what you know, the wreckage people have brought to me. He's saying, I need mercy because I have been somebody who's brought wreckage to others. Oh, if only that crowd that day could have internalized what they were doing and saying in the external. 
but they could not. So within days, the same mouths would cry completely opposite words because it was now obvious Jesus was going to lose to the Romans. The Romans had him. They had arrested him. Now you've got the Jews and the Roman authorities working together to deal with Christ. And then everybody abandoned ship because why? Because they were motivated by his power. Well, if he doesn't have the power, the great challenge came from a thief on the other side of him, a criminal that said, oh, if, you're, if you are God, if you are the Messiah, then take us down from this cross. Let's do it now. What was he into? Just within a short while, he will take his last breath, but his last thoughts about anything beyond himself is the power only as he wishes it to be. So often with God, we reduce him to what he can do or what he has done. It's a powerful thing when we embrace the truth about ourselves. How selfish we can be. How selfish we have been. How we have wronged. How we have hurt. So today you and I get one more time on a Palm Sunday to stand alongside a road and to acknowledge who Jesus is. But don't do it with first, without first embracing the truth about yourself. Paul the Apostle said there, but for the grace of God go I. Oh, and then he went and he said, oh, yeah, Jesus Christ comes into the world to save sinners of which I am the chief. What's he doing? Embracing the truth about himself. The other thing we need to embrace is the truth about God. About God. The truth about God is, is, is a difficult truth. There were two things on demonstration that day. They missed out on the first one completely. I mean, they saw power. They didn't see John 3.16. Do you know John 3.16? For God so... They didn't see that. They didn't see, they only saw power. Power to be used for their liberation theology. Liberate me from my debts. Liberate me from my bondages. Liberate me. Look, may he restore all of those things to you, but I'll tell you, it's not the first knowledge you need to embrace because there was two things being revealed very, very straightforwardly about Jesus that day. Yes, his power was being revealed through the miracles that he did and then he caps it off with this amazing miracle of a man dead for days, empties a tomb. He knows what this does. He's saying it's time. But what was it that put Jesus on that cult was it his power? Was it 
What put Jesus into a position where he would take humility to such a degree that it would mean him giving up his life and taking on all of the sin of the world upon his sacrifice. They didn't see the love. So which is the greater truth? God is powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful. Or God is love. Which is the greatest truth? Well, we find it in Jesus' own teachings again when Jesus himself clarified for them that here is all of the Old Testament. If you want to get it, here it is. Here's the most important things. You ready? Real simple, real simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He lifted up what we are to do as the highest thing you can do is love. So what was the highest thing they could have done on that day, that Palm Sunday? Love. To love God. To love others. God's love is absolutely phenomenal. It is the greatest truth. Do you know why it's the greatest truth over the power Both are true. This is just the greatest truth. Because it's his love engages with all of who he is and makes it available to you. If he was just a God of power to you, if that's all he was, let's say that's his whole thing. He's just a powerful God. But let's say love is not the greatest component of his nature. I don't know about you, but that scares me more than helps me. Because now we have a God with absolute power, but not absolute love. You put those two things together, you don't have a God that says, I'm going to restore to you the years that the canker worm has eaten because you've wasted a lot of your life. You've wasted a lot of the time and the energy and, and the giftings. You've wasted a lot of the health that I've given you. You've wasted a lot. But I'm not just going to be a God of power that's going to just give you my power in response. I'm a God of love. And love causes me to give you grace and mercy. And love causes me to respond to your real condition, to the truth about you. Because I've always known the truth about you. I've always known that you would have this failing. I've always known of this inconsistency. I've always known that you need my grace and mercy more than anything else. But what makes it happen for us is that he loves us. For God so loved the world. When we get that truth and we embrace that and engage with it, then you can start believing and hoping again. Because hope is found not that God is a God of power. That is not your source of greatest hope. Your source of greatest hope is that God is a God of love. That's what they missed that day. This was 
love. Can you imagine the Almighty God taking on flesh, riding on the colt of a donkey before people he knows have no idea really what's happening here. They only are looking for their own advantage and the power that he would give them to wield within their hands for their own particular procurement of the things that they wish. He knew within days and hours the Hosanna were turned to take him out. Truth is a hard thing. How do you become simply yourself? so that you will become more than yourself. How do you do that? Truth. You need to engage and really embrace truth. Truth about yourself, truth about God. See, truth does set you free. But here's the problem. It destroys anything that is not worthy of the truth in you. Whatever's in you that's not worthy of that truth, it'll light up. It's kind of like having, kind of like having, you know, a tree and there's a bunch of dead wood that just it needs to be burned. It needs to be burned. Truth is hard on you. Truth is that which is going to burn up the things in you that are all about you and keep you from this kind of incredible opportunity of relationship with God and others. Truth is needed to clear out the dross of our life. Truth, though, is hard. Its rule in your life will demand allegiance. And it's going to destroy things in your life. Truth will burn away the dead wood of the lies of your life. You got lies that are operating dead wood in your relationship with somebody? I guarantee you that when truth comes in, it's going to burn away some of the reasons that you've hung on to those lies. And those lies need to go. That dead wood needs to go so that there's only left the living vine. And there be the struggle. Truth is painful. It's painful. When you have heard a truth, is it not true in your life? When some truth that has come into your life and it's been a challenging truth, it's gone to your core and it's kind of hit you in a certain way, it, it's kind of come and it creates in you sort of this pain, this, this kind of, I don't know if I like this. The burning of truth, the pain of truth is there because we tend to cling to our lives. And why we want to cling to our lives is because we don't want to go through the burning of the truth. We don't want to experience that in a relationship. We don't want to experience that within our own heart. We don't want the truth will bring. It's going to burn the dead wood. That's what this Pharisee in the prayer thing, this guy was so filled with dead wood that he was disconnected from truth. The only truth that he was able to espouse was what he saw as the truth about himself, that he was better than everybody else. 
oh, what a missed opportunity. And that's what was so great about the other guy. The truth about him had penetrated to a place where it had burned him up and he was broken and the pain was obvious and, and all of the, the, the emotional garbage, he's on his knees, he can't even look up, he won't even look up to heaven. He won't even look up. He just is on his knees broken and he's beating his chest and he's gathered in the shadows of the temple. He's just, he's just busted up. What busted him up? Truth. His engagement with the truth. Truth is a blow. When you want to engage with the truth about yourself, it will be like you're taking blows. There's going to be like that fire burning at the dead wood within your life. And when you embrace the truth about God, though, when we start to see that God is really for us, that God truly loves us, when we understand a little bit of that truth, then you and I are in a position where we can allow God to work his truth in us. Romans 8, 2 says this. For the power of the life-giving spirit, and this power is mine through Christ Jesus, has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. He's saying that the power of God is that which is inside you, that you have internalized, and you cannot internalize the life-giving spirit of God without humility and humbleness, and that only comes because you engage with truth about yourself. And, in true, and engage with truth about God. When you engage with the truth about yourself and about God, this power of the life-giving spirit can explode within your life and it's yours through Christ Jesus and it will free you from the vicious circle of sin and death as it says in that particular scripture. And then all things become possible. Years that the canker worm has eaten the fruit of, that fruit can be re-engaged because you started a divine action in your life that's divine in its depths of that, that uh, uh, procuring to you all of God's best though you don't deserve it that's why grace is amazing Ephesians 3.20 says, Now glory be to God, who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. That's just the same as Joel 2.25. Just another way to say it. I can do anything. I can restore all of the, the fruitfulness that's been lost to the canker worm for decades. Now, if you're, if you're well along in life and you got a lot of destruction, a lot of fruitless years, a lot of dead wood that's gathered up inside you, your relationship in your life, just personally with others or with God, when you know that that exists in volume, you are not too far beyond hope because now you can have a beginning of a divinity in your life by the presence of a spirit through a humility that comes because you engage and embrace the truth about yourself and about God. They would have done better that day to have gone into confession and repentance, but instead they went to the power that would leave them in a place 
that could not sustain their faith in this Messiah. Look at Romans 8, 38 to 39. Yes, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor ruling spirits, nothing now, nothing in the future, no powers, nothing above us, nothing below us, nor anything else in the whole world will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's talking to people who have received Christ. You receive Christ when you have a revelation and engagement with truth about yourself, when you have a revelation and engagement about the truth about God, that you see that yourself is absolutely destitute without him, that he's not a tool to be used for your own personal liberation theologies, that rather he is somebody who can liberate you by bringing you the mercy and grace and set you into a relationship with him. This is the truth about him. He doesn't first bring you power, he first brings you love. And then you trust. Not his power, trust his love. You know, when you go through wreckage, it's easy to distrust God. How come? Why? You're focused on power. When you focus on love, the questions change. It's almost more of a statement. You're beating your chest and you're saying, I don't get it, but it's busted me up. The wreckage is great. I can't restore this loss of fruit. I can't restore this brokenness. I can't restore this mourning or grieving. I cannot restore this condition. I cannot restore it. I don't get it. Have mercy. When we receive Christ and truth has found a home in our heart, we must honor that relationship through the ongoing engagement, the ongoing welcoming of its blows that it will bring to us as you live out your faith in your homes, as you live out your faith in your economics, as you live out your faith in your fears, as you live out your faith in your crises, as you live out your faith in the strenuous steps of life. You must trust love. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Christian. Palm Sunday. God of the universe, inhabiting flesh, riding the colt of a donkey. Everybody else is focused on the raising of Lazarus. That's why they've gathered the power demonstration. If he can do that, he'll take out Caesar. Christian, don't get caught up in the things of this age. There will be many Caesars. 
There'll be many types of political, cultural, economic, giants, rulers. There's only one ruler that matters. And it just so happens he doesn't even deal with those rulers by power first. He deals with this world by love. And so this Palm Sunday, picture yourself along the path as Jesus is riding this colt of a donkey. You want your faith strong. It's not about the raising of Lazarus's. It's not about him doing any of the great miracles that he did. In fact, he was amazed that they wouldn't believe even because of that. What is it? Be amazed that this God loves you because you're in touch with the truth about you. Don't stand in the temples of life and pray the kind of prayers that are even close to this first man's prayers. If that is, you must know that you are completely disconnected with truth about you and God. Instead, take a humble position with God. Trust his love. Always know that this God of love will not let anything come between you and him. If you're here today, you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior. The only thing between you and him is you. That's it. Nobody else, no experience in your life. It's just you. Engage with the truth about yourself. You are not the divine beginning for restoration of the things that life brings. But there is one. And he can restore to you the things you thought were long gone. Christian, there's many things that have happened in your life and it's been devastating and you wonder how will this happen? You just trust this God who loves you. He can restore what the canker worm eats. But if you've never received Christ, engage with that truth. I need mercy. The truth about me is, I need mercy. The truth about you is, nobody loves me like you. Nobody loves me like this. Just you, Lord. And that is the Jesus that rode in on that colt. Let's stand together. Palm Sunday. What a great time for us to take back our praise and worship. Not in the sense of making just a glorious sound or even doing a certain action, but to engage once again in truth, that is the hardest things to engage in because truth is gonna burn the dead wood in you.
It's going to demand allegiance. It is going to bring destruction to the, to the things that are not worthy of that truth. The truth is God loves you. The truth is God has come to save you. The truth is he has created a home and purpose for you that's eternal. The truth is he came for you. You can just receive him in that and get out of the way. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I pray you prepare our hearts for just a little decision making here. We get so trapped in disengaging from truth because we don't like the pain of it. But in doing that, Lord, we are escaping the potentials that truth brings. And that truth is that it does build up the stuff that is just dead wood in our life anyway. And we can come alive. Things can increase in life. Things where there's been devastation and wreckage, it can be put back together all because of what you love that you love us and what you can do to surrendered people humble people father we take a fresh position of just humility today to thank you for Jesus Christ who came and rode that day into Jerusalem to take on the full ramifications of the love that you have for us I pray that we'll re-engage with what that means and that we will re-engage with the truth that says there is nothing like this love. We are grateful. If you're here today, never received Jesus, there's a little prayer you can borrow from me in the quietness of your heart. Maybe you're online sitting uh, at a comfortable place at home. Take, take a prayer on this. If you have never received Christ, you would just simply open your heart to him and say, today I admit the biggest truth about me is this. I am not surrendered to you. I have not gone to receive mercy because I have hidden from the truth about me. And the truth about me is I need you. I am a sinner. I cannot give my own divine beginning. I cannot restore the wreckage of years. I cannot restore these things. But I can come and I can say, Jesus, I receive your mercy. I receive the grace that you bring. And I accept that you love me and that nothing will come between you and me. Not from my past, not from my present, not from my future. I receive you, Christ, as my Savior. And I kneel before you to surrender my life and who I am. As Christians, our prayer might be a little different. It might be, I've really let a lot of dead wood gather in my life. I have run from truths you've tried to bring me. Truths that have become evident in my relationships, in my finance. In every area of my life, I humble myself to take the position of receiving truth again about me. In Christ's name, 
repair me, but burn the dead wood. I know this means pain, but I will live for the truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you find this program helpful or would like to learn more, please give us a call, 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com.